There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay. Vi må begynne. Okay. Um, då um, satte vi igång här. Welcome back, Tom. Stage is yours. It's about endings. And it's the final session. Thanks, Bjorn. That was, that was very clever of you to, when you, we talked about doing an ending section, session to have it be the ending session. <laughs> that, was, that was good. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane de Gregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Crillo, and I'm the enterprise editor at the Times. You might have noticed that two people get a lot of shout-outs in this podcast, Lane's mother and Tom French. Tom was a star reporter for the Times when Lane arrived in St. Pete, and he generously helped and encouraged her. He now teaches at Indiana University. Recently, he gave a talk about story endings that we wanted to share. Thanks to Tom and to Bjorn Nord, who signed Tom up for a recent conference, for allowing us to use it on the podcast. Today's topic, great endings. So picture a man at the edge of giving up. This is Hal Rogers. Man, I followed in Angels and Demons. Hal... His entire family was taken from him in the worst way possible. His wife and his two teenage daughters went down to Florida from their dairy farm in Ohio, which is about a thousand miles north of Florida, and they went down for a family vacation. And because the cows have to be milked twice a day, Hal stayed behind. While they were down in Florida, Joe Rogers, Hal's wife, Michelle, and Christy had the terrible misfortune to run into a murderer, a predator, who gave them directions to their hotel. They got lost. They went to a McDonald's looking for, for directions, and they ran into him. He not only gave them directions to their motel, but also offered to take them out on the water of Tampa Bay for a midnight cruise, excuse me, for a sunset cruise. And... Um, Once this man got them out on the water, he turned all of these good things, he, he, he distorted all of these good things. He took the beauty of Tampa Bay and used it in the worst way possible. He took the love that this woman and her two daughters felt for one another and used it to hurt each other, hurt them because he essentially tortured them, sexually assaulted them in front of one, other, one another, tied them up, and then dropped them into the water one at a time, make, forcing each of them to watch. It's a, it's a case that is so disturbing, I can't even think about it for too long because it's just it's so upsetting. Because like I said, then he used the water, this beautiful body of water, in the most disgusting way possible. But the real murder weapon was the myth of Florida. Florida is supposed to be the magic kingdom. Pilgrims travel there from all over the world because it's supposed to be fun and you get to, supposed to get to shake Mickey's hand. Thank you. I was worried about that. Thank you, Evan. Is that better? All right, good. So he took this myth of Florida, you know, where you're supposed to go and have fun and shake Mickey Mouse's hand. And you're supposed to be safe in the Magic Kingdom. And he used it to get these three women on this boat and to hurt them. Because they thought they were safe. And they were not. So the case was really difficult to solve. And how, you know, 
He watched from afar as the police tried, to, tried for years to solve this case because what was so difficult was that there was no crime scene. By the time the bodies were found, the boat was long gone. There was no fingerprints or fibers or DNA. There was nothing. And they had met their killer at random, which meant it was much harder to track who it was. And um, at one point, the minister of Howe's congregation in Ohio actually spread a rumor that the real murderer was Howe. And the Tampa Tribune published it. Sorry, Lane and I are. (laughs) And the Tampa Tribune published it. So imagine that your whole family's been taken from you and you're doing your best to just survive. And then people begin to suspect you. They thought, the, the rumor was that he had arranged for someone to kill his family down in Florida. That's not my understanding of what a man of God is supposed to do. Made me angry at this man. So the detectives kept working and working and working, and they were very sure that Hal had nothing to do with it. But just to give it one last check, when they, they flew up to Florida for a week of interviews, and they didn't tell Hal they were coming. Because... If you, have, if you have arranged for the murder of your family and three homicide detectives show up at your door unannounced on a Sunday, something's going to show on your face. So the detectives flew up there. They drove to Hal's house. They knocked at the door. Hal's reaction? Come on in. And once the detectives stepped inside... They knew beyond what they already knew that Howard had nothing to do with his family's murders. Because to step inside this house was to realize this was not a man living a life anymore. This was not a home anymore. It was merely a space where he got from day to day, hour to hour. He could no longer bear sleeping in the bed that he had shared with his wife. It was too painful. So he would sometimes sleep in the car that they had driven to Florida which had been returned to him, just so he could feel close to them. Or he would go to friends' houses and fall asleep on their couches, and once he was asleep, they would cover him with a blanket and hope that he was going to be okay. He fell prey to this uh, kind of magical thinking that is very common with people who've lost someone so violently. He had this irrational belief that Joe and Michelle and Christy were still alive. He told himself that there had been some mistake and that they were in Florida and that they were going to return to him. So every time the phone rang, he thought it might be them on the phone telling him they were coming home. When a new car would pull into the driveway, he thought it might be them. He waited for them to get out. He just could not get past the feeling that they were not really dead, which meant that the people, the three bodies that they buried in the cemetery could not be them. So Hal got it in his mind that he had to know. He had to know. So he got a shovel and a hoe, and he drove to the cemetery to find out. Let's stop that one there. Picture a woman searching for her place in the universe. This is Laura Martin. Laura Martin was a psychic. She was an astral projection believer. She channeled communications every Saturday night in her living room from six density beings from the Cassiopeian constellation. We are three density beings, okay, just so you know. And she, was, she believed in UFOs. She believed in all of these things. She was a smorgasbord of the paranormal. She was also raising five children. 
which meant that she was dealing with the laundry and she was dealing with aliens. And she was dealing with teenagers fighting over who got to sit in the front seat. And she was dealing with, with dark entities and demons. She was both dealing with the everyday and the eternal. And her story was really about figuring out, trying to chase down mystery, things we can't, things we can't prove. And uh, that, what I liked about her story when I, when I ran into her and started following her was that she was doing both, that she had both the kids and the crazy, crazy stuff that she was following. Um, as I told uh, a group the other day, it's very hard for a reader to identify with, uh, with someone like Laura. But I got a break one day when I was interviewing her, and... Uh, She's a very smart person. She, she reads books about science, history, mythology, religion, etc. And I said to her, Laura, what do you read when you're not reading serious books? And her son, Jason, who was 12, he was listening in on the interview. He said, well, she reads puppy books. What the hell is a puppy book? Jason went over to the shelf, and he picked up this dog-eared romance novel called The Golden Barbarian. <laughs> And the, the barbarian was on the cover, seizing the maiden. And the maiden was, you know, overflowing from her, her, her gown, and she was about to be taken. So Jason hands me the book. He says, uh, you know, they fall in love, they get married, they have puppies. <laughs> then he says, check out page 192. <laughs> and I was happy at that point. Because it is hard to get somebody a reader to relate to someone who channels communications from six density beings. But if she also has a 12-year-old son who knows where the dirty parts are in her romance novels, now we're getting somewhere. Now I can begin to relate to this person. And I followed her off and on while I worked on other things, including Angels and Demons. I followed her off and on for years. And the, the engine of her story was the question that drove her story was, is she crazy? Is she crazy? And I think that's actually a complicated question because lots of us believe things that are not provable. I was raised in the Catholic Church. I was taught that 2,000-some years ago, God touched the womb of a mortal woman. She grew pregnant. She gave birth to a child, a son who was half God, half human. He grew up to perform miracles, raised the dead. And then at age 33, I believe, right? At age 33, it's been a while since I've been in catechism. <laughs> that uh, at age 33, he was tortured and nailed to a cross. And then afterwards, he, raised, he, he rejoined his father in heaven. And every Sunday at St. Monica's on 420, Highway 421 in Indianapolis, we were encouraged to go up for communion. And we were taught communion is not symbolic. When you go to communion, you are drinking not wine, but it has been transformed into Jesus' blood. And when you eat the wafer, it is not a wafer anymore. It is actually the flesh of Christ. I don't mean to make fun of this faith. It's the faith I was raised in. It's the faith that provides a lot of meaning to a lot of people's lives around the world. But can we just agree that that's a crazy-ass story? (laughs) That is a wild, wild story. And to believe that requires a certain faith. And I don't know that the things that Laura was believing and pursuing are actually any crazier. Scientists believe... Physicists believe in this Big Bang Theory, where one minute there's nothing, and then the next there's everything. What? That makes no sense whatsoever. It is not a logical thing. But as far as they can tell, that's how the universe began, whether God was involved or not. So there's a lot of things out there that we are pursuing, all of us, and wondering about that are not visible to us that require a certain amount of faith 
And that faith is very important to us. And so what I was interested in is, okay, I can't prove that there's aliens. I can't prove that she was an exorcist. I forgot to mention that. I can't prove that, she's, that there's really demons that she's raising up. What I want to know is as she pursues these questions, what does it mean for her and her family? So I followed her for a long time. And at a certain point, after about three years or so, she told me one day that she was going to leave her husband. She was going to kick him out of their house. The, mother, the father of all five of her children. Now, at this point, Laura was 45. She didn't, had never had a full-time job. She spent all of her time doing her research. And I thought when she told me this, for me, the question was settled at that point. You are crazy. Not about aliens, but about life. Because your husband is going to go to court and he's going to talk about these channeling sessions and this astral projection and how your kids are there while this is going on. And he's going to take those kids from you and he's going to take the house and you're going to be out on the street with nothing. Oh, and she also told me that she was going to find somebody better suited for her because she had loved her husband, Lewis, but at some point along the way, she told me, the aliens had replaced Lewis with a dark copy of Lewis, which I took to mean they didn't talk much anymore. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so I thought, oh, and she, so she said she's going to find somebody better suited for her. I thought that was impossible. As I said the other day, I, I, know, I knew women in the newsroom all around me, like beautiful 25-year-old women, no kids, no, no baggage, no other husbands roaming around, beautiful, smart, their lives in front of them. And I could hear them telling each other they couldn't find anyone to go out with on Saturday night. And Laura, in a much more isolated little town in Florida, was saying she's going to find somebody at 45. Oh, and I forgot to say she was, and I don't mean to be casting any stones here. I have no place casting any stones on this question, but she was not just obese, she was morbidly obese, okay? But she was sure of it. And so I kept following her, and she kept doing her work with these channeling sessions. And one night she was channeling, and these Cassiopeians, as they were known, allegedly told her that she needed to check out gravity waves. They said, you need to research gravity waves. And then and she said, okay. And then things took a turn that I could not foresee. Let's stop that one there. <laughs> so here we are. Can I just first of all say to Bjorn, what an amazing, amazing conference you've organized. It gets better every year. It's a privilege to be here with these fantastic speakers. I've been sitting on the sessions, learning a tremendous amount, and I'm just very, very grateful to you, Bjorn. So thank you. And it's been an honor to be here with, with all of you. I love coming to Bergen, and this time has been the best yet. So thank you very much. So we're going to talk just for a few minutes here today about endings. We, we talk a lot about how to begin stories in journalism because it's really important. And we really place a lot of emphasis on that. But how the hell do you end a story? That's a different question and I think a harder question. Endings, stories are like, you know, you're trying to form a relationship with the reader, right? With your audience. And it's really, it's really like other relationships. Beginnings are fairly easy in relationships. Endings are hard. They're really hard. So how do you pull that off? The first piece of advice I've got is that if you're going to find your ending, it really helps to figure out the mechanics of how the rest of your story works. Okay? really helps to understand these things. So here's a few of them. It helps if you can identify and harness the engine of your story. The engine is a question that is at the heart of your story that your audience 
is dying to know the answer to. What's the engine of Hal Rogers' story? Anybody? Anybody? Will they find the killer and? Yes. Will Hal be okay? How is Hal going to survive this? What's going to happen to him? Are they going to find the man? And is that going to help this, this man recover? Okay. What is the engine of Laura's story? Of the exorcist story? These questions, by the way, these engines are not subtle. They're very simple, visceral level questions. Anybody? What's the engine of Laura's story? That's exactly right. Is she crazy? And what's it going to mean to her and her family? Is she crazy? What's the engine of five feet under? Will Adina survive? And if she doesn't, what will happen to her father and his wife, Adina's mother? How will, he be, how will they ever be able to recover from this loss? The other day, yesterday... There's been so much good stuff. It seems like we've been here for for days and we've been hearing so much great material. It was just yesterday, Kristen Solberg was talking about going to this, uh, essentially this internment center in Libya with all of these Libyan refugees who are trying to get to Europe. And while she was there, she found this man in a room alone, dying, dying by himself in a room, and nobody knew who he was or how he got there, or where he was supposed to go. What is the engine of, of that story? Will he survive? Right, will he survive? Who was he? What's going to happen to this man? Okay? In all of our stories, in every story we tell, what's the engine of, 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 I'm sorry, I'm pointing different people for looking for Lane. What's the engine, if you were here for Lane and Maria's session on the project she's working on right now, Lincoln shot, what is the engine of the Lincoln story. It's very simple. Will he get that shot in time to survive? Will he get that shot that's worked on animals and be given a chance, and human beings given a chance to, get that, to have the same chance as, these, as those dogs in that amazing video? So these engines are very, very simple. But it is very useful for us to first identify the engine that powers your story, because it is serious power. And it is, the, it is the engine, it's the power that propels your audience through that story and keeps them with you while you show them a lot of other things. What is the nature of mystery in our lives or faith in our lives? What is the nature of justice? We go to angels and demons. How does medicine play you know, a role in our lives? What does it mean to be living in a country where people actually look out for one another like they did with Adina? What a remarkable thing, Bjorn chronicled there. So that engine propels the reader through all of those things. Because if, if Bjorn said, we're going to do a story about the importance of volunteerism in Norway, I love Bjorn, I would not have read that story. If Lane was to tell me that she was going to do a massive project on gene therapy, I would take her out to lunch and ask her if she was okay. <laughs> like, it, really? That's the whole... That's what, I mean, we, wanna, we need more. We need something to move us through the story. And you need to be able to identify that so that you can harness it. That is a huge factor in what, how your story could be structured, how it can be sequenced, and how it might work so that an audience actually reads it. Okay? (laughs) It really helps to identify a line of action that runs through your story. And if you don't have a line of action, you need to find one. Okay? So a line of action is very simple. I wrote this massive story with two other reporters about the lives of seventh graders. And there was this kid named Carlo who was deeply in love with this girl named Kaylee, deeply in love in a seventh grade way, in a 13-year-old way. And I asked him, you know, what do you want? 
And he says, a kiss on, on the lips. He stipulates. And I said, well, have you ever kissed any, a girl before? And he says, um, does my mother count? <laughs> What's the engine of Carlo's story? It's not hard, okay? Will Carlo get the kiss? If I told you one way or the other right now, it would give you much less reason to go ahead and read that story. If I said to the readers, we're going to do a massive project, roughly the length of a short book, about the nature of adolescence today, even I'm not going to read that story. And I wrote the damn thing. We need a line of action. Boy seeks kiss from girl. Man tries to survive horrific death of his family. Woman who believes in the paranormal, the exorcist decides she's going to find real love. Okay? That line of action is something that allows you to keep your story moving and to hold it together. And it is the engine that propels the reader along that line of action. Okay, that should be obvious enough. If you don't have a main character or a couple of main characters, you need to find one. Why? Why do we need character? Character does not have to be human, by the way. I did a story, one of my favorite stories I've ever had a chance to, to write about the many lives and many deaths of one chimp. Why do we need a Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Character, human or otherwise. Yeah, the reader has to care about somebody in the story. I heard Lena Maria say yesterday that... Lincoln's mother is likely to be the main character of their story. There's going to be other characters along the way, but we're going to care about Lincoln. But Lincoln can't speak. He can't move or barely move. So his mother, who is fighting, there's nothing in the... I mean, if you can harness the power of mothers, (laughs) we'd be, you know, like somehow turn that, convert that into energy. Oh, my God, we have no energy crisis in this world. She's fighting for this son, and she can advocate and speak for him. She can be his voice, and we're going to care about that mother. Okay. Uh, yesterday in Kristen's session, she showed a, a section of a TV uh, segment where she was in Mosul on the day that ISIS was driven out, and there was a little boy who had been playing football, and a bomb had gone off. And now paramedics were doing their best to save his life, and they put him in an ambulance to try and save him. We care, and then she showed us this little boy's shoes. We care about that little boy. She did a piece from, I forget where this one piece was from, but there was a little boy again in the story, uh, Yemen. He was in Yemen, and he had had a leg blown off, by a bomb? Syria. Syria. Okay, sorry. Thank you, Bjorn. He'd had a leg blown off, and, she, and, and Kristen was interviewing him. And, you know, he's, he wants, he's looking for, hopefully, getting a chance at a, at a new leg. And she says, well, what, what would you do? If you, what do you want to do if you get this leg? And he said, I want to ride a bicycle. And she said, really? Where is your bicycle? I don't have a bicycle. I defy any audience not to care what's going to happen to that boy. We have to have somebody to care about who's going to help us pass our compassion fatigue and care about Syria. Okay. 
And as you're working on these things, you have to keep asking yourself one very simple question. What the hell is my story really about beneath the surface? That little 13-year-old boy his, that I was following in the school who loved Kaylee, the story wasn't really about whether Carlo got a kiss. It was about what's it like to be 13 years old right now. Kristen's story from Syria was not really about does this little boy get a bicycle and a leg? It's about what is it like to be trying to live a life and grow up in Syria. It has to be about something more than just that action along that line, okay? And you have to figure out what it is. Now, I need to tell you the engine of your story. It's there whether you choose to use it or not. And you can't invent it. It is there. It is a force waiting for you to tap into. But you cannot create it. You can only identify it and use it. But what you're going to use that engine for, the, the, the place you're going to take your audience along that line, that is up to you. And figuring out what is the story you're trying to tell and what is it really about, that's crucial. All of those elements, if you think about them, when you take them together, they'll reveal an arc. Wherever that arc is completed, that's where your ending is waiting. If you've thought about all these other elements, that engine will lead you to, a, to an ending. There is an ending to that line of action. Either Carlo's going to get the kiss, or he is not. Either Lincoln is going to get that shot before he, before he dies, or he's not. These are the ways that lead you to your ending. How do we know the end, what the ending looks like when you actually see it, when you're out reporting? Anyone have any theories? How you know an ending that fulfills this when you, when you, when you find it? Because endings are occurring all around you when you're out reporting. They're, they're, they're bubbling up in front of you, but you have to see them. Anybody? Y'all are much quieter today. Are you tired? What's going on here? I'm hoping I'm not boring you. How do you know? How do you know when you, when you found an ending? How do you get the answer? You get the answer, but what else? Like, how do you know you have a scene that not just gives you the answer, but that it feels like an ending? You feel happy or you feel broken. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, way up. When your main character gets closure. Yes, when your main character gets some kind of closure. Now, it's interesting because we're, many of the people in the room are journalists. We're writing nonfiction. Endings in nonfiction are not usually like they are in the movies or in fiction. They're usually smaller. Not always, but usually. I mean, sometimes we get to write, you know, our ending is the, the collapse of a bridge or the assassination of a chimp at a zoo. Sometimes the endings we, we are moving toward are big. They're very big, dramatic moments. But more often they're kind of little and they're kind of quiet. And you have to be looking for them. Lane did a story that I think about a lot where she followed a mother who had adopted a, a boy and he turned out to be, if I'm recalling right, he turned out to be scary. And she had another child, and she was frightened for what this boy might do to her, her child. So she had to take him back and give him back to the state. And on the day she was going to take him back, or he was going to be taken back, she took him to McDonald's so they could just talk one last time. It's a very quiet little scene, but it's huge. It's huge. So we want to look for something big revealed in something little. And a lot of times, endings in real life are like that. It can be simply the closing of a door, literally the closing of a door, the blowing out of a candle, a phone ringing. And you need to be on the lookout for those possibilities that are going to help fulfill that arc, but a moment that feels like an ending. So it really helps to pay attention, by the way. You have to learn what an ending feels like when you see it. So one of my best pieces of advice is study other endings. Study the endings of not just journalism stories, but movies, songs, comic books. Look at how other storytellers do that. 
Does somebody have a question up there? That's a really, thank you, that's a, that's a very help, helpful concept, both in fiction and nonfiction. And sometimes you don't have a big ending in nonfiction, but you can have what John Franklin calls a point of insight. The problem is we're writing about real people. They don't always learn anything. They don't always change. But if you can take your audience to a point where the audience has a point of insight, even if it's this person doesn't understand what's happening and they're, they're stuck in a cycle that they don't get. That's an ending. Okay? So it helps to learn what an ending feels like. It's literally, it has a certain, like, almost like an electrical charge. And I know a lot of reporters who, when they're out in the field, you will suddenly hear the ending or see the ending and you know it. You're like, you know it. Boom. I was listening to David Finkel give a, a talk not long ago, and he was talking about this book that he worked on for years called Thank You for Your Service, which I would highly recommend. It's about soldiers coming back from the war and to another war of trying to reclaim their lives and for their family to reclaim them back, in the, back in, at home. It's a very difficult book. And he said that he, when he follows this one young man as he comes back from, from Iraq and follows him for, for years. And he's with him one day, and he sees something happen between this man and his son. This, he, he comes back from this treatment center, and his little boy is there. And is it okay if I take your hand, Lane? And this, he, the little boy reaches up for his hand, and he takes his dad's hand. And he says, go, 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 go. Finkel said, I knew right away that was my ending. If you are looking for it, after a while, you will start to see not just one good ending, but sometimes you'll see several. And then you get to pick. So you need to learn how to crescendo even in quiet ways. And the way you do that is by practicing and practicing and practicing. Okay. Let's go back to Hal. Hal Rogers. So Hal takes the shovel and the hoe to the cemetery. And he's walking down the rows of the, of the tombstones to where his family or someone, some imposters are waiting. And he's about to start digging when he has this thought. And the thought is, this is exactly what those bastards at the newspaper would like me to do. This would be a really good story for those bastards at the newspaper. And as Hal told me that, I was thinking, yeah. Yeah, actually, you're right. That'd be a pretty powerful story. But that thought wakes, just jolts him out of this magical thinking. And he gets back in his truck with his shovel and his hoe, and he goes home. And he keeps trying to live his life. And he keeps milking those cows twice a day. And he helps the detectives whenever he can. He checks in with them. They check in with him. They give him a polygraph. Not because they have any doubt that he'll pass it, but because they want to be able to tell people he took the polygraph and he passed, which he did, because they don't want people thinking, wasting their time thinking the killer is Hal or somebody else that's not, that's up there in Ohio. The killer is down in Florida, and the detectives want everyone to stop worrying about Hal and start looking for the real killer. It's a device that they use to get past this ridiculous rumor that this minister started and that the Tampa Tribune popularized. Time goes on, they do make an arrest several years after the murders. They put this man on trial. He is convicted. He is sentenced to death. In his sentencing, the judge asks the people in the room to remember, in the courtroom, to remember just how alone Joe and Michelle and Christy must have felt that night on the water and watching them go in one at a time what it was like to be the third of them, the last of them, still on that, on that boat. And she sentences him to death. I will tell you on a personal note, I don't happen to believe in the death penalty, but if we're going to execute anybody, if you're going to execute somebody, I guess I can make an exception in this guy's case. I don't feel too badly in this guy's case. 
Years go by. The guy is on death row for years. Nobody goes to see him. Nobody. He is a walking negation of all that matters. He is a hole in the air. He is nothing. I find out that the governor has signed his death warrant, which means there's 30 days. They're doing like a 30-day countdown for the final appeals. And right away, I call Lane's editor and my editor, Mike Wilson at the time, and say, um, and I don't even work at the paper anymore, and I say, when that, on the day that guy is executed, I want to be with Hal, and I want to follow Hal. So I have a line of action, man on, follow a man on the day his killer, his family's killer is executed. If he stays on the farm, I want to be with him on the farm. If he goes to the execution, I want to go with him now. There's an ending. There's going to be an ending, okay? So Mike says yes. <laughs> and I, Hal does not initially plan to go to the execution. He, when I start spending a little time with him a few days before the execution, I realize he doesn't even say the man's name out loud. He refuses to say the man's name. Not because he's afraid of him, like, you know, like Voldemort, like he whose name shall not be mentioned, because he doesn't think the man deserves that much respect of being recognized and acknowledged by a name. He's initially not going to go because he doesn't want to give any more energy to this man. He's wasted enough time and energy on this man. And then he finds out that his, his niece, Mandy, who was the same age as Michelle and Christy, she really wants to go. She needs to go for closure. And that's when he decides he's going to go because the last time he sent women and his family to Florida alone, they didn't come back. So he goes to the execution. He's sitting in the front row. Mandy's beside him. I'm in the back row of this, this viewing chamber. And the execution is this bizarre showdown between the killer and Hal. Hal is determined not to give this man the satisfaction of showing any emotion on his face. So he is doing his best to control himself. The man, the killer, will not open his eyes because if he opens his eyes, I don't make any of you into Hal. If he opens his eyes, Hal will be right there. So he just keeps his eyes closed and Hal stares at him and then he's, he's, he's gone. Afterwards, I go with Hal and Mandy to a little, we go to a barbecue restaurant because it's the only place we can talk. We leave the prison and go someplace where I can interview them. And Hal is talking to me about how, he's been talking to me about how he feels like he's on this tightrope. He's been on this tightrope for years. And, you know, and the tightrope is so long, he says, that he's in the middle. And when he looks back, he can't see where he started. And he, and he looks forward, he can't even see the other side. He says, I'm going to be on that tightrope forever. So after the execution, I say, well, basically, tell me what your, what your thoughts are. First thing he says, he says, well, <laughs> I was thinking about King Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Because I, I, wanted, I wanted that thing, to, it took, the execution took too long to him. Death by lethal injection takes a while. He says, and I think we need to hurry this up, chop, chop. <laughs> I love that this man, I would never have guessed in a thousand years that, his, that during the execution he's thinking about Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. But he was. And we get to the restaurant, and he starts talking. And, you know, the story is called Angels and Demons. And without my even prompting him to, he begins talking about angels and demons and about the devil. And he says, I've stared the devil in the face, and I ain't afraid of him. And he says, uh, well, I'll, I'll show you the actual ending. The devil ain't as smart as he thinks he is, Hal said. I like to say that I spit in his eye. I ain't afraid of him. He was still out on the tightrope. He knows that he will never make it completely to the other side. There's never going to be any justice, okay, he said. He'd be dead, and they'd come back. That would be justice. But as Hal sped away from the prison at dusk, 
His suit jacket was off and his tie was off and his arm hung out the window. The breeze felt good against his skin. That's my end. It was the most, I had no time to think about it. I wrote this on deadline and I wrote that in about five minutes right there. And uh, it just kind of came out of me because I'd thought about all those other story elements for so long that I just kind of naturally went to this place. And I liked the idea of ending with a tiny moment, a quiet, very quiet moment, where we're not trying to make a ha- put a happy bow on it and make it feel like Hal, you know, seem like Hal feels justified and vindicated. And there is justice. He doesn't feel that way at all. He misses his family every single day. He has remarried to a, to a wonderful woman, but he still has, her, and he has her picture in his wallet, but he still has his wife's, his first wife's, and Michelle's and Christie's pictures in his wallet. And there, there is no justice in his mind. But there is this tiny measure of being able to live his life a little more without having to fear as quite as much. And I just kind of gravitated right away to the breeze against his skin. Did I ask him about it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What you hear about Laura and what happened to her? This is a happy ending. So <clears throat> I thought, you're crazy. You're gonna find another, you're gonna find a your your perfect your your soulmate. I'm sorry, that term makes me laugh. Um, your soulmate. Um, I'm sorry if I'm offending anyone who believes in soulmates. Uh, if, I, if there are soulmates, I would, I would venture to theorize to you that we all have many soulmates who are possible for us. We're just lucky if we can find one of them. Um, so she goes and she checks out this website that allegedly these aliens have told her to check out. I don't know if it's aliens right? I'm watching her arms move on the spirit board. I'm trying to figure out the muscles and see if she, I can't tell if she's, if she's moving the board to the letters because she's moving it. She asks these questions. You know, it's like playing with a Ouija board when you're at a slumber party, you know, and, and you're going to these letters and the letters are coming out fast and someone is writing down the letters because there's no spaces and then they're forming the answers and they say, okay, check out these gravity waves. So she does. And it's really an interesting site. It's put together by a physicist because Physicists, by the way, are interested in the nature of time and space. They're the ones who, you know, talking about the Big Bang Theory, and they're talking about string. Have y'all ever, like, read what string theory says? That is some crazy-ass stuff, okay? And have you heard about this entanglement theory? Which they have now evidence to prove it's real. Here's this. Physicists have discovered, are you ready? This is crazy, that when there are linked particles... One of the particles can be here, and the other one can be thousands of years of light years away. But when one of the particles changes, instantly there is a change in the other particle. That is crazy. And they're finding evidence that it's true. So a physicist is interested in the same kinds of questions Laura's in. And he's, he's not going to laugh at her crazy theories, right? So they begin to correspond. He's a, he lives in Poland. His name is Ark, Arkadeus. He calls him Ark. He lives in Poland. I checked him out. I didn't tell Laura. I checked him out to make sure he was a Polish physicist and not a 13-year-old boy in Philadelphia. <laughs> and they begin to correspond. They, they fall in love. They fall in love. They're suddenly corresponding every day, three times a day, four times a day. And suddenly, Laura is feeling better about herself. She starts to take better care of herself. She's happy. She invites Ark to come over to the U.S. and meet her and her five kids. He comes over. The photographer and I beg her, can we be there at the airport when he walks out off the plane? No, she won't let us. Wise move on her part. I didn't blame her. <laughs> he, comes to, he comes to the U.S. and meets her in person and meets her five kids. He's fantastic. He's, he's, he, he, he loves her. The kids love him. He loves the kids. He's not rich, but he has enough money to support them all. They get married. (laughs) They get married. And then they move to France. They move from this 
sad little town in Florida, Newport Ritchie. And they moved to France. And last I checked, they were living in a villa in France because he was teaching at some university in France. So this is how I, this is for my ending to that story. Because I talked about how people will say to me, well, what does it all mean when I tell them this story, when they read this story? Like, do I really think that aliens hooked her up with her second husband? And I'm like, I have no idea. I, I, how am I supposed to know? But all I know is Laura's real and Ark is real. And against all the odds, separated by an ocean, they found each other. And they're in love and it works. So I write, I find it amazing that Laura has spent so much of her life pursuing aliens and dark entities when in the end she caught hold of something far more elusive. We talk about love all the time. But how do we know it's real? We can't see it, can't nail it down, cannot begin to prove exactly what it is. Love is an idea without form or substance that we accept on faith. And yet we spend our lives chasing it. We crave it, long for it, cry ourselves to sleep over it. We do these things because we feel what love means inside us. And that's all we need to know that it's real. So obviously I was thinking about the theme of is she crazy? And the theme of believing in things that aren't visible. And I realized... The invisible is important to all of us. It's a major part of all of our lives. Children are born. The planet is repopulated out of this invisible idea of love. I guess desire has a little to do with it, but, but it's like we are, we are all of us. We need these mysteries. These mysteries enrich our lives. So let me just say one more thing, and then I'll stop. And I don't know if we have any time or not but for questions, but what we do as writers is we are putting these squiggles on the page, as I said, in hopes or these words on the air, and we are hoping that someone is going to receive these words and form them into images and imagine the story with us, even though it's a, a tr these are true stories. And that is an act of faith. That is an act of paying concentrated attention to the world and all its forms, and all of its forces, and believing that someone else out there is going to care about the same thing that we as the writer cares about. That is an act of love. Thank you. Okay, if you have a question okay. for Lane about any of her stories or would like to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. And join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.